Welcome to Truly Fit, the online fitness marketplace connecting pros and clients through unique fitness business software. Welcome to the Truly Fit Podcast, where we interview experts in fitness and health to expand our wisdom and wealth. I am your host, Steve Washuda, co-founder of Truly Fit and author of Fitness Business 101. On today's episode, I speak with Eric Diagati about building a sports-specific strength program. Eric's credentials uh, run the gamut here. I can talk about everything from you know him being in the industry for 20 plus years and owning big gyms and small gyms, working with Gatorade Players of the Year and Pro Bowl players and Olympic gold medalists, World Series champions to you know advisory boards he serves on. I mean, he has done it all in the industry and he's absolutely a wealth of knowledge. But specifically in this episode, I poke at Eric to give us really good insight and tips because he has so much experience in this realm as to building a sports-specific strength program. A lot of new younger trainers, National Academy of Sports Medicine and the like, are finding themselves in roles where they are not used to working with a sports team because they were taught from their certification level how to work on a one-on-one basis. So it's way different for a host of reasons that Eric explains. We go over from like a hypothetical conversation standpoint, if you were just hired as a strength training coordinator for let's say a high school football or baseball or basketball team, how exactly you go about running a program. We talk about how he uses the FMS screen and if he uses it with individual athletes as opposed to the whole team or when he would use it, when he wouldn't use it how it's different training particular positions in each sport and how you have to take that into consideration that you're not just building a blanket program. Uh, Different conditioning tips and drills that Eric likes to do and uh, just general macro thoughts on conditioning and how one should potentially go about it or not go about it. Overrated exercises and a host of other things. Again, Eric was an absolute wealth of knowledge and I hope to have him on the podcast again down the road. You can find him uh, a bunch of different places, but I think it's easiest just to go to Eric, E-R-I-C, Diagati, D-A-G-A-T-I on Instagram. With no further ado, here is Eric. Eric, thank you so much for joining the Truly Fit podcast. Why don't you give the listeners and audience a background on who you are and what you do in the health and fitness industry? Absolutely, Steve. Thanks for having me. Um, I've been in this industry for just over 20 some odd years. Uh and with that, done that in a lot of different ways in a lot of different places. Uh, primarily, you know, for a title, uh, I'm a performance coach uh, on the fitness side of things. Uh, primarily working with athletes and improving their performance, helping them stay on the field. Um, but also, uh, over the course of the years, I've had my own facility for 12 years, which is a multidisciplinary fitness center, which had uh, everything from uh, chiropractic care, physical therapy, nutrition, fitness. Um, uh, performance. And then uh, now I've moved on to doing more consulting with with teams, uh, organizations, uh, schools, as well as a big piece of what I do is, is training other trainers and, and sports medicine professionals and going out and teaching around the world. Well, that's fantastic. And uh, obviously, you've, you've already worn a lot of hats in the industry and, and done it all. So I'm sure we'll have a, uh, a long conversation that, that touches on all of those. But I have to ask first, being a New Jersey guy, where exactly uh, are you either located now or where were you from in New Jersey initially? Uh, I live in Wayne. Uh, so I'm, I'm uh, in the north part of Jersey. I always joke that I'm 30 minutes to three hours outside of Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, same, same here. I'm, I'm from a, a small town called Kenilworth. It's in Union County. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've heard of it, but uh, v- very well aware. Yeah. 
so there's a uh, there's a, a gentleman that I used to work with when I was in high school. I'm not sure if you're aware of him, but his name is Sal Marinello. Um, and he he's a, a, a strength coach who's been you know a long time in the fitness industry in your area. So okay, not familiar with the name, but but yeah. uh, but, but um, I'm sure it's connected. There's only there's only usually three or four degrees of separation in New yeah, Jersey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and and I know you've worked out of the Robert Wood Johnson. Uh, was that a gym or is it a hospital that you've worked with? Uh, I did a uh, FMS certification there a million years ago, uh, but that was the only contact that I had had with uh, RWJ. Yeah, I had seen that on your site, yeah. and I know some people who had, you know, affiliated with that with that gym. So, um, but uh, moving on here, I want to talk today about building a sport specific program, strength program. So, you know, National Academy of Sports Medicine they are churning out uh, trainers left and right here. We we can talk about. Uh, at another point, how the barrier of entry is too easy to get into this industry. But uh, now that a lot of people are entering in and becoming personal trainers, something that they're doing or trying to do right away is help out with individual teams, let's say a baseball team or a basketball team or like in, in a high school level. But it's quite daunting if you've only worked one-on-one personal training before. This is a totally different game. So where where do you start hypothetically? It's a completely different animal. And so uh, with that, so the first thing I would say when working with a team is you need to get the uh, appreciation and buy-in from the coaches. And because if you don't have that, it's going to be really tough to, to, to get this thing to work. And so I, I fortunately work with a really great group of coaches right now, and I am there for what they need me there for. So I don't, I don't have the role of the traditional high school strength coach shows up with their coffee in the newspaper at three in the afternoon. And I'm there for whoever's, you know, whoever shows up in the, the weight room that day. I am specifically brought in as consultant for whatever each coach needs. So the first thing is, is understanding what that coach is really looking for and, and what are their, their pain points really. And is it that they lost some of their key players due to injury last year? We need to do whatever we can to try to fight that from happening again. Is it that we're just physically getting beat up on the court or on the mat or on the field and we need to get, we just need to get stronger is it that we're, you know, we don't have a very athletic group and we need to be faster and more athletic this year? Um, you know, it really depends on what each coach is looking for and, and, and asking those key questions of saying, all right, what is the main goal? What is, what is ultimately the one thing I could give you uh, for your team more than anything else? Because we get caught up in, in the program. Uh, and not what the program is built there to, to provide. And what I mean by that is I tell every team when I start with them is, is we're training with one purpose in mind. And then that is for us to, to win games, to win meets, to win matches. Um, and it is not to get good at exercising. Right. And so uh, we understand that everything we're doing is a means to an end that if we, if we deadlift or we bench or we squat, or we do any of these things, we're doing that not to get good at those things, but use those as a vehicle to get good at what we're going to be doing on the field as a team. That makes perfect sense. And I just want to hit on one point you said, or at least what I heard from that is there isn't a blanket program that you're using. It's not like you're, you're saying, Oh, I'm working with a new baseball team. I'm going to print out my hundred page sheet and hand it to this baseball team. You were sitting down, you were having consultations and conversations and really making sure that it is specific to said team and said coach. Yeah. Um, I wish it would make our lives a lot easier if I could just, you know, just, uh, you know, rattle those off and, and just send them a, a link. But, um, you know, each team's uh, situation is unique. They have unique in terms of first, like I said, how much is the co- coach bought in? 
right? And are they going to be involved? And then how much are they going to be involved? Are they actually going to be in the weight room there with you? Um, is it going to be all on me? If it's going to be all on me and how much time that's going to require. And then also how much they're engaged is also going to dictate how much the players are engaged. Is this something that, Hey, we're bringing in because we think we feel like we have to do this, mm -hmm. or is this something we're bringing in because we truly believe in it? And this is a, a part of our program and, and, and the expression of, of kind of, this is how we do things in this program. And so it's expected that this is just part of the culture and understanding that is, is first and foremost. And then you have obviously logistics of, you know, in schools that I work with, we may have, uh, you know, six to eight different sports all vying for a small, you know, 20 by 30 weight room that, that can barely fit one team, let alone multiple teams at once. And so how much access are we going to get to the weight room? What type of equipment do we have access to? What kind type of time do we have? Are we dealing with athletes that are also playing in multiple other sports? These are a lot of the questions that if you don't ask that you're going to miss out on some major, you know, key factors in your program. Well, it seems quite daunting already, but hopefully as we go down through these other uh, questions I have, you'll answer them and it'll seem a little bit less daunting, but let's, let's walk through. Okay. So we, we get through that part. The coaches buy in, you meet the players. There's some sort of uh, plan in place from a macro perspective. You talked about the FMS screen before uh, that you did at, at Robert Wood Johnson. Are you doing that with each individual player? And, and let's actually maybe take a step back for those trainers who are not familiar with an FMS screen. Can you describe Sure. So what the, what the FMS screen, the functional movement screen is, it's a biomarker for your movement competency. And what that means is that every movement we do comes from a simple set of, of, of primary foundational patterns. And what the FMS just did is, is take some of those patterns and set you up in specific setup positions and, and postures and ask you to move through certain patterns and score that objectively. Um, and so with that, what, what the research that has then come from that in, in the almost 30 years now that it's been in existence, and, uh, but uh, in the 15 years that I've been a lead instructor with them, um, is that they found correlations that the people don't move well tend to, to get injured more often. And that's how it kind of caught traction in the athletic community, in the sports community, because they, they looked at NFL players and the ones who, uh, who moved poorly and did poorly on our screen had a 35% higher likelihood of ending up on injury reserve. And so that starts catching eyes of people in personnel who are saying we need to, to protect our investments. And then it goes from the NFL to, to every other major sport you can think of to now in the U S military to now even in, in, with industrial workers in the workforce and basically looking at this as one factor in how do we mitigate risk and do you have any risk factors as far as your movement competency being one of those things? This doesn't predict your performance and it doesn't, it doesn't remove the risk of injury. It just tells you if you could possibly have some of those things and then you have to actually have a, a plan to actually do something with that. Now, that being said, in an ideal world, I'd love to have all my players be able to do that, but that's not always possible from a time constraint, from a budget constraint and, and those sorts of things because it, it does take some time. Uh, I can personally screen uh, usually four athletes in about 20, about a, in 20 minutes and about a dozen in an hour. But if I have a football team of 50, 60 kids, that's going to be tough to try to, to, to wrangle in. Um, and with the, if, especially if they have a limited budget of how much they have exposure to me. So in a perfect world, yes, I'd love to be able to have a, a movement screen on everybody, but it doesn't always make itself available. So now I have to now, uh, that's going to affect my programming as well. So I have to be a little bit more cautious 
in my programming. Cause if I had a, if I had a screen on everybody, I know not only what, what flaws people have, but I also know what everybody's good at. And I know that it's going to be safe to start implementing uh, a certain drill uh, or I, I know if there's certain drills that I should avoid. So example, you give up a baseball team. I had a high school team that I, that I did do movement screens on. And we had out of 30, I think it was 37 players. I think we had only two that actually had a, uh, a passing grade in the squat in the deep squat um, out of 37. And, and, a, and I think out of all of the team, all of them had a pain on at least one of the seven patterns. And so the coach was standing there next to me as I'm doing the screen. And he's, and I said, you know, you, you're watching what's happening here. And he, he said, this makes a lot of sense. Now I know we've been trying to squat for years and we can't, you know, we've tried everything. We tried on the boxes. We've tried different variations of squats and we just couldn't get kids to do it. And I said, well, yeah, because they don't have the movement competency to do it in the first place before you even build capacity of that. So there's a lot of other ways we can still get them bigger and faster, stronger without putting a bar in their back and having them squat. So the, the, the FMS just gave me that guide to say, here's what I should not do. And then here's what I'm okay to do. And here's where my baseline is to start. If I have that great, but that's not always the case. Yeah. And you know, we're, there's we're not working in a vacuum here. Time is a factor and there's only so much time that you have with these individual players or, or time that they have to work on their own bodies. So while you're working on, let's say knee valgus, you're not necessarily working on catching ground balls. So there, there is a time factor that's involved. And obviously you have to walk that, that line, but I do think understanding the FMS screen and having an idea of it, even if you're not using it, is still a huge advantage when analyzing the athlete. And, and just it really just taking a step back and understanding movement and to be able to say uh, to a coach when it really gets to, the, so, you know, this is, we're talking about entry level, fundamental level, when it really gets to the highest level is when I can have communication with a coach who's working with, and, and I, and baseball is a great example because I work with it a lot, quite a bit is if they have a kid who can't get down on a ground ball, I can explain why it's a movement barrier that he has. That's, that's being, that's now become a barrier to their skill acquisition. So you can hit them a thousand ground balls a day and you can give them all the drills. They just physically can't do that. Right. You're trying to teach them a language they don't understand. So I can remove that barrier if I can get them to move a little bit better and take that roadblock out. And the same thing could go for pitcher's delivery or hitter's swing or really anything athletically. If you understand movement and say, okay, I want to just be able to check this box to say you move well enough that that's no longer your issue. And then because people take it to the other extreme. And we get people who get so wrapped up into this world of corrective exercise and this whole thing of just improving mo and just mobility and movement, mobility and movement, that if you don't have a, a measurable to say you have enough movement, that's not your problem now, that you end up spending time that you could have been working on their strength or their speed or their power, their, their uh, change of direction or some of these things that they do need that you miss that because you didn't have a system. And that's where it becomes less daunting is if you have a system of checks and balances to say, I've checked that box. We have enough of that. All right. Um, I deal with this with other coaches when they, uh, with conditioning is a huge battle. And this is why having, having a, a good line of communication and trust with your, your coaches is Coaches love to run their players and sometimes run them right into the ground. And this I could go on a soapbox forever about. And from whether it's day one and they're doing conditioning tests, which I think is or maybe maybe one of the biggest waste of time that you could possibly do um, because it doesn't necessarily do anything and it doesn't change anything. Um, if you were going to run them a bunch anyway, and what you need to test 
any for in the first place. And are you going to tell me that your varsity starting center fielder who bats third and who's an all state player is not going to play if he doesn't pass your conditioning test? Yeah. And does he even really need it that much if he's playing baseball? So like asking the whys of these things and, and getting your coaches to trust you to say, this is what we need for conditioning and not anything more than that. And any more running is going to defeat everything we've done in the off season. And so getting them to buy in that we got this and getting them to understand we're conditioned enough. We don't need more of that. We need more of this um, is, is truly about just having a system of checks and balances. And I would, I would also assume that those drills and conditioning more often than not, unfortunately, I'll, I'll call them, they're very gym class esque where they'll just tell the athlete, you have to run two miles. We're going to record your time. It's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm a linebacker. You know, when am I running for more than four seconds at a time? Why am I running long distance here? So I, I do think that's that's another thing. There's just there's a lot of antiquated uh, conditioning drills in the uh, yeah uh, amongst the amongst the, the coaching, and that's why people hire uh, people like you to to make sure that doesn't happen. But I, I want to go back to something you said before, or something you were about to say when you were talking about the different athletes, a pitcher compared to a, uh, a first baseman. In this case, let's talk about a catcher compared to a first baseman, where as a catcher would have to sit sort of ass to grass for long periods of time, right? That's going to be needed a different uh, sort of uh, overview of their body as a first baseman who might have to maybe have the ability to stretch. And you're not worried about him throwing as much because you don't throw at first base. Now, are you looking at all of those things and building specific programs for each player? Depends on the level of the program. Uh, Most high school programs are not quite at that level. And also because most high school programs your kid who catches also sometimes plays first base and also sometimes pitches. Um, Same thing when you have uh, football teams that have rosters of of 30 players that are playing both ways and that your kid who's a quarterback is also a linebacker and they have very different, unique demands for each thing. So you try to, to, to address some of those things, but it depends on the level of the program, how specialized their players are. Um, And then the other thing is the access you have to the players is that, yeah, there's there's one there's one thing if you're training a, an NFL defensive back and that's what they're going to do for a living. And they're not only just defensive back, they're a safety versus a, a, a nickel versus a, a, a corner is very, very specific. Whereas if I have a cornerback a in high school that also is their running back and he's also the point guard on the basketball team and he's also the second baseman on the baseball team. Um, you know, there's a lot to handle now. It's just more a matter of, let's just make them as, uh, make sure that they, they have at least a baseline of movement competency, make sure that they have a baseline of general physical preparedness and, and, and overall, uh, relative strength and that they can at least have the durability to handle the demands of everything they're putting their body through. And we can't get real specific because that specificity changes every, every 12 weeks. Now is the. Uh, off-season program part of something you're involved in or only in-season? And and what would be, I guess, just gen- in, in a general sense, what is the major difference from your perspective in working with athletes off-season as opposed to in-season? The biggest problem is that most people don't do in-season. And, and that's the reality. And and that's a huge mistake. And and I am, that is one of the biggest things that, that's, that you're, I'm constantly competing for time with coaches. Um, and I've had this conversation more times than I can count is that they'll be very, very invested in the off season program. And they will want to start lifting with high school football as a perfect example, because they're, they're usually the most bought in, in the weight room. They'll want to start now. They'll want to start their season's over. You know, a lot of the teams, if you're not in the semifinals or finals, you're, you're done now. They're going to want to start lifting in the next you know week or two. 
first of all, I, most of the teams, I try to convince them to push that back at least a couple of weeks, give their bodies a break from the physical demands that they just went through. Um, and then with that, they'll be very bought in and in the off season, you'll want to, you can't wait, you're chomping at the bit to get started, but not realizing that these are 16 year old kids that it's a long grind from December all the way through. And that's before you've even put pads on. And now you're going to have them there five, six days a week for three, three hours plus at a time that we do all that. And then we get to the season and we don't train anymore. And basically I have to explain to them the, the, the fundamentals of how exercise and training work is that if you lift up heavy things, your body says, Oh my gosh, I better get stronger. If you're going to keep doing that, if you stop lifting up heavy things, your body says, Oh, I guess I don't need that strength anymore. And so what happens is we do a, basically a 12 week regression program from when camp starts and they're at their weakest when ideally they need to be at their strongest right now, when we're going into what your, your, the whole purpose of this was for was to try to win a state championship. And so in season training is, is probably one of my biggest pet peeves that I see at the, at the, um, at the high school level that is, that is often overlooked. And if, if they do anything at all is that they, they spend so much investment in their off season and they don't keep it up during in season. It doesn't take a lot. You could, you could get away with two, 25 to 30 minute workouts a week that could maintain a lot of what you're built in the off season. If you do it right. Um, and if you map it out right with your schedule and it won't eat that much into your time and it'll pay huge dividends and keeping your people on the field and keeping them fresh from when you want them fresh, when we're heading into championship season. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I think too, that, you know, in the football world, there's a lot of trickle up and trickle down. And I don't think for whatever reason that has trickled down yet, meaning the NFL is doing that college is doing that, but the high school quite hasn't caught on where, there's still a lot of times hitting three days a week in between games. Whereas in you know college, they're in uppers, then they're lifting one day, then they're watching film and doing mobility work another day, and they're and they're not hitting uh, as much as as much as high schools are. So hopefully that's a, a trend that changes o- over time. And then other sports have have other you know have each has their own unique battles they have to fight when you're dealing with baseball, and um, baseball has you know, and especially in the Northeast and you get, you know, rainouts two days out of the week, you know, from April to May. And now you have to play four games in a week, you know, to try to find the energy and time to, to still have some practice and work on your skill stuff that you need to develop. And you still have to, and then try to find time for strength and conditioning in there. It's not easy. It's not an easy task, but you have to be, that's why you have to be committed to it as a program that this is part of our culture and this is how we do it. What do you think are some musts or some absolutely nots as far as exercise types that are uh, being used now, let's say, just let's just keep it what we're talking about in like high school programs. Are there exercises that you're saying people are too focused on them, we don't need them, or things that are missing that should be integrated into these programs? Um, one, I, I think in terms of things that I would pull out is first, there's two probably things. First is the things you can't teach really and coach really well. So there's some things that could give you great benefits. Uh, and I'll give you two examples, like a barbell uh, deadlift uh, and or the Olympic lifts can give you huge benefits. But if you don't know how to coach them or you don't have the staff on site to know how to coach them really well and to oversee those lifts, you're going to wash away not only all the benefits, but you're going to increase your risk significantly. So if I'm in a situation where I'm not going to be hands-on to oversee those lifts, I don't plug them into your program because I don't trust that the you know, freshman pitching coach or that the, the, uh, JV, 
uh, line coach whose only experience in a weight room really is, is what they had back in high school 10 years ago. And they're not, they don't have the ability to have the watchful eye and the coaching skill to coach those things. That's fine. That's who I have to, to help me implement this. I just won't, not, won't give them the, uh, an exercise that complex. So that's, that's number one, is only put in what you know we can safely teach and execute so you actually even get the benefit of it. Because remember, we're not doing the exercise to get good at the exercise. We're doing it for an, for an end result. And then two is distance running, long, slow distance running um, from, a, from a physiological perspective that doesn't match the demands of, of 90% of the sports unless it is cross country. Um, and also from the fact that they don't understand that there is every, everything we do has a cost. It has, there's a training cost to everything. There's a metabolic cost, which may be a good thing. We're gonna burn some calories. There's a physiological cost, which may or may not be a good thing because if I go and do a really taxing practice or, or workout the day before a game, now I've, I have no physiological reserve going into the next day. Not a good thing. Um, but there's also a structural cost. So like I have an example, I have a kid who's, who's on one of the teams that I work with. He's a, he's a division one recruit getting, he's, he's got about a dozen different schools looking at him. He's a big lineman and he sometimes lets his weight get away from him. He went to one of the schools that's recruiting him and they said, he needs to lose weight to start running. And he said, coach, the, the, the school said, I need to start running. Now this kid's knees rub together when he stands there. He's just a big body that he can't control. You tell him to start running. It'll be, you just start your timer and when his knees blow out because he's not, he can't handle the structural cost. So for whatever metabolic benefit you get from that, it's going to, it's 10 times worse what he's going to pay in a structural cost. So when you go and do and run a bunch of poles for football or uh, for baseball, or you're running a bunch of gassers, you have to understand the, phys the, the structural toll and the physiological toll that's taking. And is it really worth it? Are you getting anything out of it? And if, uh, you know, you think you're getting better conditioned for your sport, it may not always be the case. Um, there are other things that we can do that'll get you much better condition with a much lower structural cost, much lower time cost. Um, that'll be much more efficient and effective for your sport. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because I agree. There's there's always trade offs. There's no solution, but some of the trade offs are not good when you're when you're doing these these drills, these gassers, and things of that nature. I know that I like to do things like boxing with some of my athletes because it's still high intensity and it's endurance and they're moving rotationally and they're using their arms and they're using their legs and we're working on footwork. What are some of the maybe out, out of the ordinary things that you're doing with athletes to keep them conditioned, but it's not just your run of the mill gassers? Okay. So if you've ever been an athlete or you've been a coach, you've never been in a practice where, where you know, the kids have said, oh, good, it's time for conditioning like they get excited for conditioning because it's, it's, it's been frameworked that it's, that it's punishment. Mm -hmm. Right. And so they just want to get through it and they hate it. And then the coaches have their tough guy attitude of this is what it takes. And we're building mental toughness, which is a whole nother, we had spent a whole nother podcast. So that's a bunch of nonsense. But um, so if I can take it where it doesn't feel like that punishment, that's the, and I'll give you the one thing that I do with field sports that is probably one of the best drills that I found is that what we do is we take, uh, and this is where I will group them somewhat on position and I will box off uh, sections of the field. And so let's say if we're, you keep using this example of, of uh, football, um, I'll have the linemen in a, in a small box. I'll have the, the, the uh, backs and linebackers and then a moderate size box and then the skill outside guys in a bigger size box. And then what we do is we put everybody in those boxes. I call out two names, right? And so we're going to have 
Steve and Eric, here we go. You got 30 seconds or 20 seconds, whatever we said is our time. Go. And we play tag. And they have to chase everybody down and try to tag them. And we compete to see who can get the most people. And so with that, you're working on reading uh, you're reading uh, people's hips, reading people's feet, being able to break down, change direction, accelerate, decelerate. Uh, there's a huge conditioning component. They are gassed when they're done, but they are, they are laughing. They're having fun. They're competing. And they don't feel like that's conditioning. And it is tremendous conditioning. And, and there's so many dynamics to that of working on their ability to do all those things. That, that, is, my, that is a great go-to uh, for, for conditioning that that people generally don't think about. Yeah, that's fantastic. And what came to mind when you said that is also like dodgeball, right? In a very similar way where you have to catch, you have to locate the ball, you have to move your hips, you're throwing overhead, which you do in a lot of sports. And, uh, you know, you're, you're moving in all directions. You're moving laterally, you're ducking, you're jumping. So I think that that's probably something else that, again, doesn't seem like punishment, but you're, you're working on conditioning-esque things. Yeah. And, you know, whether it's that or if it's on a, on, in a strength perspective, you know, using, uh, you know, using th doing things like tug of war um, or doing different drills with battle ropes. Um, those are the kind of things that 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 are they feel like play, but they're actually checking a lot of boxes in terms of physical attributes we're looking for in terms of you have to learn things that have direct carryover in terms of positioning, leverage, self-organization. Um, translating into things in your grip, being able to generate power, learning how to manage your breath, all those things we can sneak in here in something that feels like play. Um, and the coaches like it because there's a competitive element. Um, and then the, and then the kids like it because it doesn't, it's just not another gasser running from here to there. So I'm going to break down sort of where, where we've gone so far. You initially maybe meet with the coaches and the team and you get a sense of direction from the coaches and from the team and what the players need and what the coaches are working towards, then you make a, a, a plan, some sort of prescription on what you're going to do. You're overseeing the athletes. We are making sure that there's in-season training also, not just, just training beforehand. We're making sure that training is commiserate with the athlete and the sport. If, if it is, again, football, we're not going to have them run five miles uh, for conditioning, we're going to have them play tag and do things where they're moving their hips and feet in all directions that mimic the sport itself. And is there, is there anything else I missed that you feel is like a, a vital component to tell someone who would be brand new to working with a, uh, a high school sports team? Yeah, I think getting, building the trust and rapport of the kids themselves and getting them to buy in. Right. Um, I, I, you know, I don't like the role of being the mean strength coach that shows up that everybody's scared of. And the, Oh no, you know, uh, coach Degatti's here and, and he's going to beat us up and make us run. Um, it is more about a trust and in, in building and where uh, I tell the first thing I say is our first most important and most valuable asset we have is communication. And especially let's say if we're working with a sport like um, uh, track or if we're working with uh even baseball and softball is that I explained to him that our number one goal here is to keep you on the field, keep you on the track. Right. And that um, no one ever hit a home run. No one ever, you know, uh, won a race from the training room. Right. You need to be able to be your best ability is, is your availability. availability. And, and so with that, we need to keep you healthy. And so in sports, other than, you know, your contact sports, you know, like basketball and, and soccer, I would count as a contact sport and football is really a collision sport. 
with those things, there's, there's warning and, and it's sports that don't have that element. There's warning signs that will come up. And then even in those sports that do have it, if, if a helmet goes into your knee, I can't, you know, that's the nature of the sport, right? That's what happens. But for the other stuff, the hamstrings, the hip flexors, the Achilles, the, the, the sore shoulders, all that sort of stuff, your body's going to give you a warning sign. And we can do one of two things. And anybody who's ever been an athlete knows that we can do one of two things. We can just ignore it and try to tough through it, or we can go and try to do something about that. And so I explained to them, look, if you can, if you can pay attention to your body, and if the, if I give you no other gift as a, as a, as a, someone who's in charge of improving your performance is create greater awareness of your body. And if you can be aware that I have a little twinge here that doesn't feel right, this doesn't feel like it usually does. And you can communicate that to myself and or the athletic trainer. And that's, that's another piece we should get into is the importance of a, of a team approach on the professional side, but is communicate that to me now. And now maybe I can give you some um, mobility or stability drills or some things you can do to remedy that. And, and it may only set us back a couple of days or a week or so. If you try to tough it out and ignore that, now you may be shut down two or three weeks with which within sometimes a season that's only six to eight weeks, you may miss half your season because you wanted to be stubborn and ignore this, where we could have resolved a lot of this if we caught it earlier and had done it in a lot less painful time staking way. So communication is number one and in, in getting people to understand and appreciate that. And every, to every school team that I work with, I, I give them my cell phone number and I get texts every single day. Hey coach, I got this. What can you help me? You know, can you help me with this? And sometimes it's like, no, you got to go see the athletic trainer. Or sometimes it's, hey, try these things, see if they help. And then when I'm there, you know, next week, check with me and we'll see what you can, what else you can do. Uh, if you have the time, Eric, I'd love to finish touching on what you just mentioned, sort of the professionalism of networking and working as a team. I know as a personal trainer, what got, what propelled my career is having a, a, a golf a golf coach, right? A golf specialist, having a physical therapist, having a sports medicine doctor, having an orthopedic doctor, having a neurosurgeon, all these people in my circle that I referred out to and they referred back to me. Not only did I learn, but I also didn't step on any of their toes, which was very important. And that wholesale approach to the clients helped my client, which in turn gave me better reviews as, a, as an expert, which got me more clients. So can you talk how that works in, in your field? Yeah, uh, that is huge. Your, 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 your network makes you that much stronger. Um, but unfortunately we go into it and I, I probably made this mistake in younger years is you go in to build that network, hoping to get more clients out of it. Um, whereas ultimately you want to build the network where you become the trusted resource for that network to the point where, um, I have enough rapport with the athletic trainer and I have enough rapport with the team doctors that they trust me to, to the decisions that I'll make. And I've had multiple occasions where um, they, they, you know, I've had the, the, the doctor and the physical and the, the physical therapist and the athletic trainer say, you know, they're good as far as we're concerned, but we want you to clear them because you spend more time with them. You, you know, that you know, the dynamics that this sport is going to put them through and what they need to be able to handle. So I want your stamp of approval before we actually give the the coach, the green light, because the coach is going to shove them out there as soon as possible. Um, so, and then getting the trust of the coach to say, look, coach, here's, here's what the, the here's what the plan is to bring so-and-so back to the field. Here's where you can start using them. You're going to start using them today, just in practice. I only want this, only want them doing this for now. 
and then let's see how they respond. And if they respond well, then they can do this tomorrow. And then if they're doing that, then hopefully by the end of next week, you'll have them, you'll have them for good. Right. Um, and if they can, they can trust you enough to do that and understand that, look, if you trust me through this process now, it, we can make it a week or we, or we could do it, you know, the old school way and you can make it a month. Um, but you have to be able to build that rapport to do that. And that's not about handing out business cards and getting referrals. That's just kind of being that resource. And um, it's, it's a very cool situation when you can become that resource and have that lane uh, that people really, they know that you're the go-to for that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more and echo those thoughts. And I imagine uh, whether you're currently doing it or you're thinking about doing it, you're going to develop maybe an online course of sorts that has all of this information uh, so that you can teach others what you've learned throughout your, your career? Yeah. So uh, ironically, that's something, a project that I'm involved in now. Um, a, a colleague of mine, Mike Perry, who has a great facility up in the Boston area called Skill of Strength. Um, Mike and I met through FMS. We're, we're both lead instructors with FMS. We became friends years ago. And um, and we were talking, uh, we were both down at, at FMS headquarters about a year or so ago um, for one of our virtual courses. And we were just spending some time, we were talking about, okay, well, what, what do we think could be next in terms of uh, that's not out there? Like, what do we see in terms of education that's missing for our world? Because we go out, we teach trainers and, and strength coaches and physical therapists and athletic trainers. And like, what's our biggest weak link? What's our Achilles heel? And we both kind of ironically landed on the same spot and it was program design. Like in, and what I mean by that is we have a lot of court, we have a lot of really cool courses and we have a lot of really cool information and stuff out there that people go out and grab, but they don't have a system to, to tack it to. And so one of two things happens. They go out and take that, that method course of whatever it is, kettlebells or FRC or FMS or, uh, a mobility course or any of these things, right? And they take it and one of two things happens. One, they go back Monday and everybody's doing that, right? Forget what we did everything up until now. Everybody on Monday now needs more mobility or everybody now is going to use a kettlebell or everybody now is going to going to use yeah. whatever thing I learned this weekend. And that's, I'm all in on that. And that's all I'm going to do. And I'm that guy now, right? And that is now my new silo that I'm going to live in. And I am going to only do if I'm a kettlebell guy, I'm only going to do it if Pavel says to do it. And um, I don't look ever outside of my, my silo. That's one way it happens. And we get caught into that trap and we, we pigeonhole ourselves into one method uh, of, of practice. The other mistake we make is we go and take a course. And I can't tell me at times I've had this where people who've gone, taken one of my courses and said, it's all, oh, it's great information. I love it. I love it. I can't wait. Then they get back Monday and now reality sinks in and I have my full list of clients or I have my full client load, a patient load as a physical therapist or I'm in the athletic training room and it's like, shit, how am I going to plug that? Where am I fitting the time to do this? How am I doing this? How did like, this doesn't fit exactly in with the, with the, to plug and play with the system that I have. And so, you know what? I liked it, but I can't, I just, it doesn't work in my situation. And because they don't really have a system, it's just, it's just emergency triage that they're doing, whether it's on the training or rehab side, and they don't have really a system that's methodical. And so because of that, they, they keep learning new stuff that they, that they acquire. And then they just as soon forget because they don't have a system to actually apply it. And so the, the concept of our principles of program design is say, look, there's some guardrails and there's some, there's some checklists 
of principles that apply to anything. If you're using exercise as a modality for improving uh, someone's uh, fitness, health, wellness. And so those, those guardrails and those principles um, are what we teach. And then whatever methods you want to plug in, good for you. We don't really care at the end of the day, whether you use a five, three, one system, whether you use uh, West side, whether you use Pilates, whether you use strong first, doesn't really matter is you can take all of those things and put them in one big melting pot. If you have the right principles and checklists to say, okay, now I know when I use kettlebell swings versus deadlifts versus um, uh, something else. And so now I have a system to put that up against. And now it is a lot less daunting because I just have a simple checklist to say, okay, did I check this box? Do they move well? Yes. Okay. Do they have enough strength? Yes. Do they have enough power? Yes. Okay. And then now I just go through and where's your weakest link? Oh, okay. Well, maybe your weakest link has nothing to do with what happens in the gym. You're lifestyle recovery stinks. And we need to invest our time in teaching you about the importance of sleep and the importance of nutrition and hydration and these things. So if I have a checklist, it's that simple is that I just have a really good checklist to kind of go through and say, where is our, where do we need to focus on? And that's how I build a program around that. And I don't waste time doing drills that you, for things that you don't need. That's absolutely fantastic. And certainly from the national Academy of sports side, I can tell you uh, that that's needed for, for trainers, because like you said, they are inundated a lot of times with a lot of information and a lot of different new modalities. They not only do they not know where to put them, but they feel like they have to get everything in just for the sake of getting everything in. Right. So it's like, if they look around the room, they say, okay, if I'm training with this client three times this week, I have to use each piece of equipment. Why? Just because it's there. So uh, I think, I've, I think that's going to be you know, a life changer for people and, and also people who, uh, are, are passionate, but they just don't have the, uh, the the sense of the next step, and that's that is a lot of young personal trainers that I work with. And 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 with that, so you know, we even had we've run a couple of beta courses for for professionals in our network for this for the live course for this, which will be we'll have dates you know posted in the next coming in the coming weeks. Um, is that when we have case studies and we say here's your case study and we put people in groups and say, you need to write a program for this individual um, to understand that, okay, here's, here's a, the difference between a program, which is not the same thing as a workout, right? If you're just giving workouts, that's something different than a program. Program is ultimately what leads you from point A to point B. The workouts are, are the, the means to, to kind of fill that in. And then within a workout, you know, we'd had really smart, you know, people that were in that room that have lots of experience and, and yet they have that session chart and it, and it, it, it intimidates them in that. Well, there's a, there's a section in the set. Every session chart has the same sections to them, right? They have warm up, they have this and that, and they, well, there's a section for, for power, but this case study, um, all right, well, let's give them medicine ball salt throws. And so when we review the case study on the whiteboard, you say, okay, you gave medicine ball throws. Why? Well, you know, that's their power. So well, do they need power? This is the case study was a woman who's uh, looking to lose weight and power's not anything has nothing to do with her goal. So we don't just have to fill it in. It just because it's there doesn't mean we have to fill it in. Right. Um, and just because there's a progression of things that you may learn and uh, uh, of all the, 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 you know, different models that NASM may have where there's, there's this stabilization equivalent training. And then there's the, you know, this equivalent training. Well, what if I don't need stability? Yeah, I'm with it. Don't do it. 
then don't yeah. do it. Then yeah. it's okay. But if you don't have a system to check that box, everybody gets stability, even though they need don't may need it or not need it. And so unless you have a checks and balances, you're going to spend a lot of time doing things that aren't getting them closer to their goal. And so the difference between a, a, a good trainer and a great one is that they a good trainer will still get your results. I'll just get you there faster because I can I can sift through all the nonsense and say these are the 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 biggest steps to take to get there safely and effectively. And I'm not going to waste time doing anything that's unnecessary because I already checked those boxes. Do you mind me asking what is that first step? So the first step is is finding out as much as you can about the situation, whether it's the client, whether it's the team. Okay. And then uh, part of the course that we talk about is, is key questions. And sometimes these key questions are more valuable than any assessment that I do. And I, I've kind of gone full circle with assessments. Um, and that's what I really got into at first is I did Paul Check's uh, internship and I did Poliquin's internship and I did every NASM course and I did all these things. And I had this really amazing assessment. And the problem was, is it was an hour and a half. And that's a problem when I'm trying to run a facility at the time that I have eight trainers that I'm trying to scale out and, mm. and duplicate myself where I'm the bottleneck. Everybody has to go through me for assessment. And then I'm realizing that, you know, a lot of this information I'm gathering is cool, but it doesn't apply to, to this individual. Um, and this data collection, if I'm not going to do anything with it, why am I collecting this data? Yeah, it's really cool to know exactly with a goniometer, how many degrees of glenohumeral internal rotation you have, but this person can't touch their toes. They have poor breathing strategies. They just want to, they just want to be able to pick up their grandkids and lose a couple pounds. Like this doesn't matter. And so, uh, and it wasn't going to change my program anyway. So why am I bothering collecting that data? So I can sharpshoot more with even which assessments I would do more, but even on the assessment side, as much as I'm into that, so the most powerful assessments I do are some key questions that I'll ask you, because if I miss some of these things, I'm going to really derail your program. So if I don't, know what you do throughout the course of your day, right? And now you're going to show up for your six o'clock workout and I have a hit workout plan for you, but I never bothered to ask what you do. And then I don't realize that you're loading pallets all day, right? <laughs> or you're, you're, you know, that you're, uh, you run a trucking company and you're, you're low, you know, getting in and uh, out of trucks and getting, uh, uh, you know, loading pallets on and off in a warehouse. Like the last thing you need is a hit workout at the end of the day, yeah. right? I need to learn how to, my job is to, to manage stress and put as much stress into your body as possible to create a positive response, but not too much that it's going to create a negative response. And so I need to know those things. I need to know your medical history, your injury history, your, your, your training history. What have you been successful with? What have you done in the past? Cause all that's going to lead me down a path to write your program just as much as anything I do as far as physical assessments. Yeah. I, I, that sounds absolutely fantastic. I couldn't agree more. I think a mistake that people make too sometimes is they'll hand the client a sheet that might be sort of the, their Park Hue medical assessment form, but they don't actually have a conversation with them. And then what happens is the client then gets to decide what's important and what's not, right? So when I sit down, you might not think that you breaking your ankle at 22, because now you're 55, matters, but it does matter, right? Because now there could be imbalances that you've never noticed that I, if I would have known that you had this ankle break that you were hobbling on during your tennis career, that, that I, could, I could change and shift what I'm going to do in the program. So you have to have the actual conversation with the client and not just hand them a sheet and then and get the sheet back. Well, Steve, you and I know because we've seen enough people fill out those charts and go, no, 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 sign. Okay, can we get started? Yeah. That nobody's paying attention to those charts. Right? No, half the time and they so, come back. I've had people tell me that they've had a heart attack three years ago. I said, that's not on your list. That wasn't on your sheet. 
Yeah, no, I, I, we have some great stories. We tell in the course about that. The one I tell is I had a woman, um, I, I was using her as an example for a movement screen. And I said, you don't have any, any injuries that we need to know about? No, no, nothing. And I go through and I say, you sure you didn't have anything. You have a big, you have a couple of big scars on your knee. She's like, oh yeah, well I did have, uh, those ACL surgeries. I go plural. <laughs> she says, oh, well I had four of them. I said you forgot four ACL surgeries five minutes ago. Like that's pretty important for me to know that's going to impact our programming, but people aren't going to be forthright. And so that's why I want to have, again, checks and balances to know these things because yeah, park Q doesn't cut it. A park Q is, is a, a thing to kind of CYA to, to, to have that, but it, you need to pick that thing up and read it and then ask the question, no injuries, nothing's hips, knees, shoulders, low back, nothing. We'll say, Oh, well, I do have this. Oh, well, I do have this. Oh, well, now you start to get the, the full picture. And sometimes even that's what the purpose of a movement screen does is you realize that, you know, they have no range of motion in that one ankle. And you say, do you ever do anything to that ankle? And they say, oh yeah, you're right. When I was 22, I did break my ankle. Okay. What'd you do for it? Well, nothing. I just, I wore a boot for like six months and then I just started back playing tennis again. <laughs> I and think say, okay, well you, you skipped some pretty big steps there, pal. And so now we have to go back and undo 30 years of bad movement that you layered on top of that already restricted ankle. Yeah, I think it's important just, just to quickly too go over the mental side of that because this is why it happens so, so people aren't uh, unaware. They're not trying to hide it from you. And it's not necessarily like naivety. It's this amnesia we have about our own medical history where we don't think it's a big deal. So we forget about it. It's like, I forgot how difficult it was the first six weeks of my child because we just, but, but I'm sure if I got back to that moment, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sleeping at night and it's very difficult. So I sometimes forget about surgery that I've had or difficulties that I've had because we've dealt with them. We've gotten past them. And we just have this natural ability as humans to have this amnesia about difficult situations. That's why we have to really probe our clients. Um, there's, there's kind of two edges that we have and, and, and Gray Cook, who's one of my mentors who I've had the, the gift of working with for, for the last 15 years who, who created the FMS says there's, there's, there's people who don't think they can do things when they actually can. Those are the safest people. And those people just never get fit because they never challenge themselves because they're scared of everything. Right. And then you have the other side who's the way more dangerous person who thinks they're way better than they really are. That's the Al Bundy who scored four touchdowns in their state championship game 25 years ago. And don't realize that that was a different human being than that's standing here right now. And that you can't do certain things. You can't just jump into the weight room and pick up where you left off. And so those are the most dangerous individuals because they, they, they overestimate what they can do. And that's why having, again, that checks and balances to know of having a system to say, here's what it is safe for you to do from a movement standpoint, from a, from a challenge standpoint, from a, a physiological standpoint, and knowing where here's where our baselines are and here's where we can start you based on who's really here in front of them. Because, because I always say when we write programs, I need to know three things. We talked about knowing about your past, medical history, injury history, training history, that sort of thing. Um, your present is what the assessment process is. The, 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 the interviews, those key questions, you know, where you stand right now in terms of your movement, your body composition, your strength, your speed, your, all those things, are that's the present. And then the future is what, what's the environment you're trying to get yourself prepared for. Um, and then, then I have to be able to match those demands. And so that's really the three key factors that I need to know in terms of writing your program. And then now, once I know that information, I have a pretty good idea. Up until then, I have no idea. So I get texts, I get calls. You probably get the text too. Hey, can you give me a good 
war, a, a good workout for baseball. Hey, can you give me a good stretch for my low back? I, I, you know, uh, there's no answer to that. Like, and so the more, the longer I've done this, the more I realize that I don't know. And it depends are my two favorite answers. Um, because I don't know, stretch for your low back. Maybe you just, why does your low back? Maybe the first thing I ask is why do you think you need a stretch? Yeah. What, maybe it has nothing to do with your low back, why your low back hurts. And if I stretch it, you know, I could actually make it worse. So they're like, Oh, well, what do I do then? And so like, just to get people to understand that it's a little bit more complex than just here, you know, I had a, a coach come to me and say, um, uh, coach, I'm sorry. He, he was supposed to meet with me to discuss the offseason program. He's like, listen, I'm a little bit of a rush. And, uh, could you just give me some stretches I can give to the, to, to the girls so we can, uh, so we can avoid injuries this year. And I said, really, um, what do you, what, what, uh, a subject do you teach? Um, while well, I teach history, I said, okay, well, listen, so if we got 10 minutes, just give me a brief overview. Like there was a, there was a revolution and there was a civil war. And then there was, there was like, there was a couple of war wars in Vietnam somewhere in there. That's pretty much it. Right. I got that covered. That's we're good. Like that's pretty much, but it, but, and it's not that he was again, from the standpoint of being malicious about it, it's just, sure. they don't understand that there's a lot more of a thought process to this. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and getting people to appreciate that increases your value. When someone, when you spend that time asking those questions before you ever, ask them to, to do an exercise before you even go and uh, do it. And, and that means they understand that you're invested in this, not just them. And, and it gets them to understand this is about them. This isn't about you. This isn't about me selling you Eric's program. Yeah. Because I, if you called me up right now and say, Hey, I want you to work with my son. What, what are you going to do for him? I have a guy right now. I'm, I'm, I'm looking to start up next week. He's a high level lacrosse player. What are you going to do with him? I don't know. I have no yeah. idea. I have no idea. I've, until I meet with him and look under the hood, I have no idea what I'm going to do. And I may, his biggest thing he may need has, he may never touch a weight ever with me because his biggest need may be learning about his nutrition. His biggest need may be learning about other things that have nothing to do with what you think it's going to be. And so um, that's where the, you know, having that, again, I keep coming back to having a system to know, all right, well, I know what, boxes need to get checked for you to get from here to where you want to be as a lacrosse player. I just need to see which ones you already have checked before I know, can tell you what I'm going to do. Cause I'm going to do the ones that aren't checked first. Eric, this has been a wealth of information. I can't thank you enough. Where can the audience and listeners find more about you, your program, your upcoming course, everything, Eric Degatti? Sure. Uh, easiest place. First uh, place to start is my website is, is my name, E-R-I-C-D-A-G-A-T-I, ericdegatti.com. And because I do a bunch of these, as well as going out and teaching all over the place, I have a thing right on the homepage. It's an Ask Eric uh, forum where you just drop in a question that goes directly to my email. And I'll get back to you in a couple of days with hopefully an answer. And if not an answer, a resource where you can get the answer. Um, in terms of the course that is called principles of program design, uh, we have Facebook, Instagram, and all that stuff. You can follow me on, on all those things, as well as, uh, follow principles of program design, any of those, like I said, we're going to be having a, um, some online courses that we're going to be looking to get out some mini courses as well as an online version, uh, hopefully by spring. And we're going to be setting up dates for 2022, um, in the coming weeks for live versions of this, which are hugely interactive that we've, like I said, done a couple betas of that are going to be, that have really gone awesome. And we're, we're excited to launch those throughout, uh, um, 2022 at, at, at a couple different locations throughout the country. My guest today has been Eric Tagati. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on the Truly Fit Podcast. 
please subscribe, rate, and review on your listening platform. And feel free to email us. We'd love to hear from you. Social at trulyfit.app. Thanks again.